0: This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by PowerSwap. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories, probably episode 250-something at this point, where twice a week together for the past three years, we've been able to do this, where we try to figure out where this whole movement has started, where we are right now, where we're going. We've talked during bull markets. We've talked during bear markets. We've talked during times where we don't know what's going on. We've talked during times where we think we know what's going on. And as a famous friend of mine once told me, Charlie, you don't know what you don't know. But we're doing all of this to learn what we don't know because that's the best type of information that you can possibly get. And today to join me, is one of my newest friends, Matthew Lemurl. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on Untold Stories today.
1: Great to be here, Charlie. And I'm very excited uh, to be able to get to know you and all your audience too.
0: Same. You know, you um, have a long career in, in understanding uh, corporate innovation, understanding where we are. You're a best-selling author of The Intelligent Investor. You've written books like Build Your Fortune in the Fifth Era. The Ministry of Bitcoin and Second Chance. You're a keynote speaker. Um, you've worked for companies like as an executive for Gap. And now you are the managing partner of Blockchain Co-Investors. And um, what was really cool when we were doing the research was you're also a managing partner at Kuretsu Am I am I pronouncing that right?
1: you got it just and right. Thank
0: you. I didn't know what a kuretsu was. Um, can you kind of tell the audience what that uh, concept of corporate governance actually is going back in like Japanese culture?
1: Oh, wow. So that's a great question, Charlie. So um, for me, uh, let me just say my focus today, every day is blockchain co-investors and blockchain. Uh, I helped. Love uh, it. Yeah, exactly. So um, so Koretsu is the world's largest angel organization. They invest in more early stage tech companies than anyone else. They're in about 60 locations. And I've been associated with them for 15 years. And um, I do help manage the funds from Koretsu Capital. But the name Koretsu is actually a continuation of something even older, which was a Japanese called Zaibatsu. And Zaibatsu, the, the fundamental concept is it's a community in which everyone brings what they can, everyone assists every other member, and everyone takes out more than they put in. And in that sense, it's, it's, we're going to talk, I'm sure, about DAOs and distributed organizations. But the Japanese uh, had that concept uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And then later on, it became uh, synonymous with their, uh, their sort of uh, holding companies. Their, their very large companies that had many, many sub-companies within them. And they would call themselves uh, pre-second World Saibatsu. And then, for various reasons, that became a somewhat negative idea. So they turned uh, it into Korezu, which is the the, co- the current concept, if you will.
0: So you have this concept, and I think that I was uh, uh, Toyota, Honda, and some other companies, where they share common, they hold equity of each other's companies, and this is in the current you know kind of corporate structure. Uh, and then those of their suppliers, but then their suppliers own equity in the top holding company as well. So it creates this like, cycle where everyone is uh, kind of like, you know, how Bitcoin started and, and how blockchains, where if the whole, if the integrity of the system is at stake, the whole system collapses, uh, uh, you know, the whole system kind of falls apart. And it was really kind of cool to see that. Uh, I, didn't, I had not known that it existed. Is that, yes. is that uh, legal in, in other countries? Can you do that in, in the U.S. today? Would that be considered like a monopoly?
1: No, it wouldn't be a monopoly. Um, Well, just backing up for one second, Charlie. So I know we're going to go and talk about business and finance and things like that. But culturally, this is even longer established uh, in some parts of the world. So if you went, for example, to uh, the enormous Fukushima uh, challenge that Japan had a few years back, um, it was pretty interesting that the old people, the old people in the community, Agreed to do all the cleanup work, but they weren't asked to do it. They volunteered to do it. And that is part of this notion that wow. if you're part of a community, yeah, if you're part of a community, you do work and you do work that the community needs and you don't always put your own interests first. And in that sense, democracy also is supposed to be like that, which is why JFK famously said, Think not what, uh, you know, what the, your country does for you, think what you can do for it. And I think a lot of people forget that, unfortunately, and they put their own interests first. So, so this is a, a bigger thread. Now, to answer your question, uh, yes, of course, businesses can have cross ownership. And uh, in fact, in many, many multi, multi sort of national corporations, there are uh, complicated webs of companies and cross ownership and things like this. Uh, so it's very, it's, it's legal for sure. Uh, a monopoly obviously means that you have more than your fair share, uh, sort of a dominant share, if you will, in a product or a sector or a marketplace, and therefore you can control, to some extent, the price and the market. And when when we rise to that level of consolidation, people start getting nervous, and we'll we may even talk about that in a minute vis-à-vis crypto assets because price discovery. Is supposed to be open and organic and set fairly and obviously if some people control the price then they can take advantage of other people.
0: Do you see the inability to have had proper price discovery as in the last 20 years as the killer application for blockchain's digital assets and our whole you know crypto world?
1: I think that uh, I think that one of the things that Satoshi Nakamoto wrote into the white paper that is so very very important is the notion of trying to create more distributed, decentralized decision making and more fairness in the way the algorithms work. Uh, anyone can participate. Anyone can benefit. But um, but so the technology can enable more fairness, more equitable, more access. All of those things that we all of us say we want. Um, uh, you know, Pretty much everyone in, in, in uh, the democratic world says they want those things. In practice, do they really want them? We can talk about that too. Um, but crypto and digital assets is such a broad category that you can have centralized digital assets. You can have centralized uh, cryptocurrencies. You can have centralized protocols. And, and when those things start kicking in, then the promise of uh, open, accessible, fair, and equitable may actually be compromised or challenged. And sometimes it's right that they should be because there are some applications where you can't just have everyone deciding what should happen next. Uh, uh, I think that um, you know open governance is a great thing in many, many cases, but not necessarily in every case.
0: Yeah, true story. It's, it's, there are definitely... You know, you said something interesting that that crypto uh, is a whole industry now and it's multi categories. It's all different things. Uh, I agree with that because it used to be just looked at as uh, as just applications, you know, for finance. And that's changed. It's probably any industry that can be uh, changed by this will be, you know, anything that yes. can be disrupted. You guys, uh, uh, you work um, and you founded in 2014 the Blockchain Co-Investors. Uh, um, and you've done uh, dozens and dozens of investments over the last year or two. You guys just released uh, a paper breaking down your 2021 investments. I want to know, kind of my listeners, they're really asking me a lot, are there are there tailwinds in technology right now that our industry can kind of be catching up to that's really going to be catapulting us into 2022?
1: Yes. Great question, Charlie. So. Uh, so there is a long history here, uh, and I think I you've already intimated some of it. Alice and I both began as uh, consultants, and we worked with the la- world's largest companies over the last 30, well, beginning in sort of the late 80s, believe it or not. And um, we would help them set strategy. And uh, digitalization was a theme, you know, back in the late 80s and early 90s. And so we started working on that. And we, what we all did globally over the last 30 or 40 years is we digitalized communications. And that was something that we called the internet. It's a platform and it rests upon a, a set of protocols of which TCPIP is the core protocol. There are others as well that are very important. And so today we take that for granted, right? We, we yeah. all oh, communicate. Wow. Yeah, we, yeah, we communicate digitally. You and I are communicating digitally right now and every industry got impacted because every industry communicates every uh, you know every entity communicates every person communicates and we got about 5 billion people online and every company every industry every vertical was dramatically impacted well the problem is charlie that uh tcpip and the internet is a communication platform it was never meant and it's very bad at being a commerce platform it's not secure it doesn't have systems of identity and trust embedded in it. It is obviously concentrated and it has no native systems of assets or monies embedded within it. And so, actually, this is the funny thing. You know, if you go to Amazon and you say, I want that item, and Amazon says, Yes, you can have it. And then they ask you for your transactional information, you give it, you, fin- you think you've finished the transaction, but it isn't true. You just finished the communication of the transaction. The actual transaction, the, the commercial part, goes out of payment gateway and it goes over infrastructure that is uh, pretty old. Uh, you know, thirty years old in some cases, and um, it's extremely inefficient. It's insecure. It takes a lot of time. It's paper based to a large extent. Half the world's assets are paper based, yeah. and and so none of that is fit for a digital economy, a digital world. And I, I'm going to give you a couple of examples that should make. The folks at home uh, sort of really resonate. One is if I wanted to send 100 bucks to my own kids in London, I have five kids, two of them live in London, um, my bank would take $25 of the $100. And when they receive the money at the other end, they'd also have an incoming wire transfer fee. And it would take probably about a week, certainly five days, to transfer that money. Now, with Digital assets and digital money. I can transfer that money almost in real time at almost no cost. And now here's one other example, and then I'll stop talking. Charlie, no, keep going. But that you're is, sc-
0: you're scaring everyone. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to because I just want to bring it home to today and reality. So, if if anyone in America wants to buy a house, and by the way, the house or the apartment is the biggest asset most Americans will ever own, when they come to sell it, they will lose about Six to eight percent of the value that they have accumulated over their lifetimes in that piece of real estate. And it will take about 60 days and reams and reams of paper. And if you look at it closely, you say, What, you know, what on earth is going on? You know, why should Americans lose six to eight percent of their principal asset just because other people are inefficient and slow and bureaucratic? All of that. America needs to digitalize monies, commodities, and assets, and crypto and blockchain are the ones to do that. So that's, for us, for Alice and I, that is tailwind number one. That is the inevitability that's going to drive blockchain forward, because blockchain enables digital monies and assets, and the whole world knows they're going to have them. It's going to take decades to put them in place, and they're going to be on distributed ledger technology.
0: That's that inefficiency in the price that 8% that you're talking about that 8% of inefficient price discovery that powers a whole 30 trillion dollar real estate industry in the United that's States
1: right. that's right so
0: if that price disco- if we're just talking about disrupting even you know 10% of just the real estate price discovery industry we're talking about doubling the whole market cap of crypto of all cryptos that we have today, that's how. I forgot it was Scaramucci who said it. He so, someone asked him on a podcast, "Are you in the? Are we in the first inning of crypto?" He said, "We haven't even broke spring break, spring training yet. You know, we haven't even started the training." But, and this is, and then so the, the opposite extreme. If we have perfect price discovery, then will those industries go away? Will the concept of speculating on real estate go away? Like, will all of that go away? What happens to these industries? What, how do you create, I guess I agree with you. And then I say, okay, I'm ready to build a company now to service the new, you know, transactional real estate price discovery for our one example, but it's, it's everything. How do you service that future market?
1: Yes. All right. So, uh, so let's just talk about that for a second. So, you know, the, let's take residential real estate as just as a quick example. It's an easy so, one for
0: people to grasp. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Everyone lives somewhere. So, you know, there are people who need to live somewhere and there are other people that are going to make the living space available. And those other people range from people that own land to people that build buildings to people that sell buildings and rent buildings and all of that's absolutely the industry. Right. Uh, most of us don't know how to build our own homes. And so we rely upon other people to do it. And so then that's the primary market. You, they build a house, you, you decide to go into it Makes and sense. buy it or rent it. And then there's the secondary market for homes, which is you, if you own it, get to sell it if you wish. And meanwhile, other people make a, a business out of managing the marketplaces, if you will, for the buying and selling of homes. Well, in a digital world, that would become very efficient, right? That's all we're saying. In a digital world, the home, which would no longer have a paper-based certificate certificate of ownership, it would have a digital certificate of ownership. And since it's unique, we can call that a non-fungible token if you want. A non-fungible token is just a unique uh, certificate of ownership. Well. If, if the home had a digital certificate of ownership, and if we have a digital marketplace where you could buy or sell them, then anyone in the world would be able to buy and their, sell their homes at relatively quick turnaround times, and the friction would be quite modest. Uh, we know that because we've seen other assets that have moved down that path. The number one asset that moved down that path was called public equities. Public equities in the 1980s was paper based. It was inefficient. There were heavy costs to trade, and turnaround times were very slow. And liquidity, liquidity being a measure of the degree to which people are buying and selling, liquidity in public equities was very low. And then we did the big bang. We digitalized public equities. We made global marketplaces, which don't quite operate 24 by 7. And uh, public equities became much more efficient. The transaction costs went down substantially, and access improved enormously. And so going back to real estate, that's what needs to happen. We need to digitalize the ownership records for real estate. We need to build digital marketplaces, and everyone needs access to them. They need to be compliant, I believe. Um, And then we will have dramatically more efficient real estate market. Now, going back to your industry, going back to your beginning question, will the industry go away? No, of course not. I'm not going to build my own home. Not until I have 3D printers that can do it all without me worrying about it. So the industry won't go away. Will the industry become more efficient? I certainly hope so. I mean, I hope our American government doesn't think it's a good thing that every American loses 6 to 8% of their primary asset just by trying to sell it and then um, will some people be challenged yes those people that are in the current system that are making money because it is inefficient should go away and they will struggle and they will be replaced by more efficient approaches and that in my opinion that is a good thing not a bad thing that's a good thing
0: Sorry to interrupt your regular scheduled programming, but I wanted to tell you guys that if you're using PancakeSwap, Uniswap, DYDX, SushiSwap, you're doing it wrong. You need to be using PowerSwap because PowerSwap is a user interface, a decentralized smart contract platform that sits on top of all of these. And when you go to Paraswap or untoldstories.link forward slash PowerSwap, because they're refunding your gas. If you go there, then you'll be able to, on top of Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain and Polygon look for the best prices for your tokens and swap and do everything in one predefined transaction on chain. Instead of having to do the approval to this token, to that token, to do all these different things, Paraswap does it all for you. It's decentralized. They just released their API version five that you can see everything. It's all open source. Very cool stuff. UntoldStories.link forward slash power swap if you're using any of the other decentralized protocols you're doing it wrong because you need to be using the routing beautiful power swap routing system and it's fully decentralized too it's gorgeous talk to you guys soon it's sometimes the best way to understand and actually the reason for the show like where we are right now is to look back in history and i was you, re- you had co-authored this paper like 10 years ago um, called, when you were at boost called The Rise of Generation C, actually in 2010, yes. Implications yes. for the World of, of 2020. And yeah, you literally like predicted the rise of this like, I don't know, this digital native society. Uh, what changed? Like yes. you, it, every, almost everything came true, but but what was different in 2010 that we didn't have that now that we had in 2020, uh, did had you known about crypto even back then? It's kind of crazy to look back at some of those papers and, and smile to yourself.
1: Yes, it is true. Um, so just saying again, Alice and I, even back at McKinsey, when we first started out, which was a long, long time ago, I worked on uh, the big blank and the digitalization of the London Stock Exchange. Oh, that's so um, cool. So the digitalization vector is something that's always been a part of us. I helped launch BankAmerica.com with Mike DeVico and George Cheng and the Bank America team. I helped launch Gap.com when I was the head of strategy and Cork Deva Gap with that team and, um, and many others. So digitalization has been something I've worked on forever. When it came to decentralized distributed, I first heard about that when I was working on HP strategy. Which would have be been about 2004 or five, and some of the team, the HP team members, were very, very taken with the notion of decentralized, distributed, well, distributed uh, computing. So, uh, and of course, at that time, we were shifting from we had already shifted from proprietary mainframe to outsource mainframe in large data centers through providers, but we were only just learning about going to the cloud, which was obviously uh, is today what it's all about, Azure. You know, Amazon Web Services, Google Web Services, and so on. Um, But it's centralized. So the notion of decentralized computing was beginning to be talked about back then. Digital monies were also being talked about back then. And I actually worked on setting PayPal's digital wallet, wallet strategy with Scott Thompson and his team all the way back in about 2009 or 10. So so these are not new thoughts. What was brilliant about Satoshi Nakamoto was that this this person or people knitted together in a relatively simple way. I know it seems complicated, but it's actually quite simple. They knitted the parts together and made it work. And that was really the light bulb that went on for Allison and I. So I probably uh, diverged a bit from your question, Charlie. But but yes, it is this is not all new. It has been worked on for a long, long time, and what's different today is the technology has made things actually work. Yes. and so now, yes, yeah, so now so and that this is how innovation always occurs. It starts as a concept. You know, people mess around with it in academia and in the laboratory, but there's no use cases. Then a bunch of entrepreneurs show up and they try and make it work, and most of them fail and that's there's a lot of this is the hype cycle there's a lot of hype and then a few people really make it work and then it's serious and it's real and then it accelerates out of that phase and we move into the time the beginning of the inflection point we begin mm. to move into the time when large amounts of capital and large amounts of resources begin to flow and the world takes notice And then we get all this noise about regulation and and issues and and the like. That's where we are right now in blockchain. And that was the internet in about 95. So that's where we are. What's so
0: interesting is that the um, Bitcoin wasn't born out of academia. It was actually looked at in a way that it wouldn't work and it was negative. I remember in 2011, giving a talk about Bitcoin at the New York School of Law or New York Law, I think it's New York Law School down in, in, in downtown area, and um, and I had met the creator of 4chan there. Uh, his name is Moot, and 4chan till today is probably the it's probably will be seen. It's in textbooks. Is 4chan is seen as uh, a huge, uh, not just a company that made massive amounts of or didn't make massive amounts of revenue, but 4chan is this huge societal shift. Moving on the internet. So many different things have started on 4chan between potential, like, you know, government coups to to cryptos that were pumping. But here's right. a technology that still the world doesn't understand. I remember Moot telling me in that year, he's like, they'll never understand Bitcoin. They'll never. And for yes. years they didn't. It's so interesting how maybe it's almost as if Satoshi could have been a bunch of academics who were looked at as like, yes. if I had tried to launch this. Under you know in that Caltech, uh, 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 you know whatever, then I would be kicked out of my career.
1: Yes, Charlie, it's a great conversation. So I, uh, you know, I wrote the Ministry of Bitcoin, which is a novel. Alice and I wrote Blockchain Competitive Advantage, which is our investment thesis. But the Ministry of Bitcoin is a novel, and I wrote it because I wanted to write a novel that. If someone who isn't really business or finance oriented, if they picked it up and they wanted to understand the essentials of our time, the last 20 years. So, you know, Al Qaeda, uh, September the 11th, uh, the Freedom Act, the Patriot Act, you know, the the, uh, WikiLeaks, uh, the, the wrestling between centralization and decentralization, and then the launch of Bitcoin and blockchain. If they wanted to sort of at least understand those things, they could just read a novel and come out understanding the essentials. There's a bunch of other stuff thrown in as well. Now, um, the book in the book, there is a Satoshi Nakamoto and I give away who it is. But I've thought a lot about this question of who could that person be. And actually, I actually I think it would be someone like Tim Berners-Lee. And so I'm going to explain why, Charlie. I think that, yes, they do have to have academic background because the white paper and Bitcoin is actually very long on really understanding how governments, economics, monetary policy, and yeah. so on work.
0: Those 12 and pages, pages—it's just yes. has so much in there.
1: There is so much in there and it's, and it's the sort of thing that a professor would be able to write. Um, then the person has to understand uh, computer science and payments and finance in some detail. And of course, someone like Tim Berners-Lee Help create the World Wide Web. Uh, and, and some people would argue he wrote the core of it. So clearly someone like that has those sort of capabilities. And then of course, it has to be someone that is willing to give it all away. And there are not too many people in the world that be- believe in equality so much that they're willing to give all the value to other people. And uh, that, that particular individual who today is a professor at Christchurch, which is my old alma mater, um, he would have that characteristics. Now, I'm not trying to put the finger on him specifically, though maybe I am, but um, but it's that type of a person. Now, amongst the cypherpunks, there's quite a few people like that. Uh, but what we also know is they're probably English, because there's enough stuff in, yeah. uh, in the genesis block and so on that make you think it is an English person, as am I. And again, it almost certainly isn't first and foremost a computer scientist. Because they wouldn't have needed Hal Finney and others to do so much of the initial coding and work. So so I actually think it is more coming out of academia than it is coming out of Silicon Valley, uh, most likely.
0: I agree with you there. I don't think it actually came out of Silicon Valley. What um, I would say the only thing I would add was is the person would have to be either so independently wealthy or have found wealth in some other way that they could live with every day watching a lot of people who don't deserve to get wealthy, get wealthy and craziness yes. or someone who doesn't, you know, maybe someone much older who doesn't care about any of that because it's not like, it's not like taking, you know, writing something or discovering some sort of invention that changes the history of the world. And then where no one gets rich off of it, that's, yes. that's very amazing too. But here it's like you still allowed other people who were early on to do well off of it. But at the same time, you risk Bitcoin not succeeding by leaving so early because it could have died so many times. Oh, my yes. God. Yes.
1: Yes. Well, I'm agreeing with that. But <laughs> the I, whole industry I think...
0: could have died so many times. In fact, there were yes. still a year.
1: Yes. Yes, I'm agreeing. So that's why. Uh, Again, someone like Tim Berners Lee, who's globally recognized and famous for having helped create the World Wide Web, WWW, um, someone like that, from a self actualization perspective, they've checked checked the the box on global recognition. And at that point, for some people, it isn't actually about the money. Uh, They're more than willing to not have that much money, which is another point, by the way, which is, Mm. We know that Satoshi Nakamoto, if the person's still alive, has billions of dollars uh, uh, you know, under their watch, and they don't spend any of it. So again, they don't seem to be very money focused, which is why you know, I, I think that you want to find a person who is more actualized by the purpose and the meaning of the purpose than about the money and the benefit that derives from it. And I actually do think a lot of professorial academic academic type people do care more about the learning, the idea, and the education and the sharing of the knowledge than they care about making money. Because if they really cared about making money, they probably wouldn't be doing what they're doing.
0: Let's. I mean, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about happiness and joy, uh, the quest for that, my personal life goal, um, and finding happiness and joy in your work, in your personal life. Whatever that may be, uh, we're very lucky. We should all be very lucky uh, every single day. And you've alluded to it too. You you uh, uh, work with your wife. You co-author books with her. Uh, work with her on different things. You both have your strength strengths and weaknesses. Power couple, if I may say so. Um, I try to do the same thing with my wife. We work in very similar industries. I work in hers. She works in mine. Do you have any advice for my for me for for others who are kind of in the same position as you guys are? Um, especially now, in the past year or two, that COVID brought us all home, and we're all working together. You know, even if we don't want to.
1: You need Alison on your uh, your show at some point because Alison does this beautifully. She's shy. She's too busy. Well, no, no, yeah, no she will. She will at the right time. Um, uh, talking about happiness and mindset, uh, and you know how to balance multiple things and maintain joy in your life is something she's very good at. Uh, I'm a warrior. I was born a warrior. My family uh, helped me become even more of a warrior. And worry is both a a power. You know, I I think about the future. I think about scenarios. I I can be uh, pretty good at figuring out what the right path is, how to set strategy, how to avoid risks. You know, and I do that around everything. And unfortunately, that also means uh, too much of my time is worrying about things that may not be important, may not matter, get in the way, and I don't always enjoy today as much as I should. So I'm not the one to uh, talk to about this topic. And for me, this is a job, a uh, 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 personal, uh, personal work. If you were to ask me, uh, this, so within your question, I think you have to have uh, meaning in your life, and I think that at the age that Alice and I are, we find meaning in blockchain. We think that. Digitalizing the world, uh, providing everyone better access, taking out lots of cost and inefficiency in everything we do, and helping everyone gain access to the things they want in their lives in faster, cheaper, and uh, uh, easier ways is is a good purpose. And so that's the purpose we've set ourselves on. That's what blockchain co-investors is all about. So that's one part of it. Then uh, you can't spend all your time working. Say you've got to carve out enough time to do all the things that are not work and enjoy those too. And if you're in a relationship, then you have to put some serious time and energy into maintaining that relationship and the relationship will inevitably go up and down and there will be ins and outs and there will be transitions and changes. And if you're in a one-on-one relationship, the other person may actually change what they want, what they need, how they want to spend their time over time. Yeah. And you've got to be listening and supportive and working with them in a bilateral relationship. So so those are some miscellaneous thoughts. But I'd be the first one to say that um, I spend much too much time in, in my worry mode. I'm the same way I do.
0: I spend too much time worrying about most things that I shouldn't. And then when it comes to the time where you had to make a decision, you would have come up with the answer in five minutes anyways. So why you spend all your time worrying about it? But as much as I can say it out loud, I'll finish the show and then I'll just start worrying about something. And then hours of my day could be taken up worrying. But I guess a lot of that comes from the PTSD and the things that I've experienced, but it's still, that's no excuse.
1: Well, that's where things like transcendental meditation or or yoga or other things can be helpful uh, to give your mind more clear, a white space. But, but, you know, I became very successful because I was so good at uh, figuring figuring out the plan sure. and the future and the, the what could go wrong the downside risk you know uh, and I was very very good at that and my clients when I was a consulting partner at uh, Carney and at Booze, they paid me millions and millions of dollars to bring that skill to them and I was rewarded for it but uh, it does have, create collateral damage too and um, and you know obviously uh, that's you know, none of us are good at everything.
0: I like that. Yeah, none of us are good at everything, and relying on the right people to have around you, uh, who are like, so you advise uh, Fortune five hundred CEOs. You've you've helped people deal with not just business questions, but also personal quest, personal things. I'm sure. Um, would you advise them on even like the type of friends they have, life choices that they make?
1: <laughs> no, I'm not that person. I. Um... I believe that, uh, well, I believe that the world is a big place and there's many, many opportunities and over a lifetime, it's important to experience them. If I, if I look backwards, uh, uh, Charlie, if I look backwards and I say, when did I not spend my time wisely? <laughs> it's something I've I have thought too much about. Is it uh, when you were haven't... worrying? Is that the answer? Well, actually, it's it's that, but it's also when I didn't change fast enough. Uh, and what I mean, but I actually have it tattooed on my arm. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And um, J.R. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote it. And um, so, so I think the world's a great place. There's many, many opportunities. And sometimes I got myself into a rut and I stayed somewhere longer than I should have. And I did that through fear. And I did that through uncertain, uh, you know, unsureness of the need to change. Whereas if you just go through life wanting to explore more things and learn more things, I I don't think you ever regret it. Um, You know, you you know, I think people that stay doing the same thing too long may look back and say, I didn't use my time wisely. But people that are constantly exposed to new ideas. And there's a lot of evidence of this, by the way, as people get older. Um, the people that stay sharp and tend to live longer are the people that embrace lifetime learning and the people that sort of check out and 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 have challenges. Uh, uh, it used to be said that there was a very high, and this is factual, by the way, there was a very high uh, uh, rate of mortality amongst males when they retire. And it was because they sort of felt like their life oh, yeah. was over, their life work was over. But of course, now I think we're in a world where you can carry on doing things, changing things and so on. Now, I, I just want to go back, uh, Charlie, you asked about generate, uh, the digital generation, Generation C, and we never answered that. And it is absolutely fundamental to everything we're doing. So can I just talk please, about that yeah, for please. a second? So um, so that booze work, as you mentioned, um, we'd done all this work around digitalization and we'd begun to understand that people were changing. And so we did this massive global project. Uh, Roman Frederick and his team, uh, who are my partners, led the project. I worked on it too. And uh, we interviewed thousands and thousands of essentially millennials. But they were people born uh, after 1983 or 4, so that they'd only ever lived their formative years in a connected digital world, with the internet being something that they had at their fingertips. And we wanted to know, are they different? And so we did lots of work, we asked them lots of questions, and we probed that. You know, how do you think about work? How do you think about entertainment? How do you spend your time? How do you think about friends? And by the time we got through it all, we concluded, yes, they are different. They are different from prior generations. And we called them Generation C, the connected generation. And that was in that white paper, Generation C white paper. Um, it's really going to change the world because they, the leading edge of them, are today in their early 40s. And today, half of America, 50% of America is, uh, I believe, 43 or younger. In a place like New York, two-thirds of the population, the electorate, are 45 or younger. And that generation does want digital, mobile-first solutions. They do want easier, cheaper accessibility. They don't trust the way it has worked in the past, and they most of them, a large percentage of them, 55 to 60 percent of them, fully embrace crypto, Bitcoin, and and the, and the blockchain movement. And if I could put all of that into a fine point, finally, are our elected officials are beginning to get that message. They are finally understanding that whether it's this election, the one in four or six years time, or the one in 10 years time, they will lose the election if they don't listen to the electorate. And the the digital native electorate is now moving into its power years. They're, They're holding important positions, they're earning a lot of money, they have a lot of discretionary resources. And increasingly, they themselves will be standing for the House or for the Senate or for other important posts. And I think that's what we just saw in Miami, New York. Um, uh, uh, Forward looking uh, elected officials were able to take advantage of the fact that digital generation C, digital natives, want what's coming, and blockchain is central to it.
0: You know, I'm just thinking about my personal life before 2014. I was consider myself a mildly balanced individual, certain way, smart, not smart, successful, not successful. But when I got, when I had gotten arrested that day, that, that day that I'll never forget, it rewired me in, in a, in a way to think that I'm living life three feet in front of me and everything is constantly rustling in the bushes every second. And so while in my Professional and business life, I've become wildly more successful than I thought I would ever be. And sitting on this podcast, and I have huge imposter syndrome because people tell me, "Wow, you're so smart," or "You're such a great podcaster," or "You formulate answers and problems and you ask great questions." But I was never this way, and going and going through that made me this way. Where I've made myself this way, and I've always looked at it as a positive, but at the same time, it's made me into a person. that I'm starting starting not to like as much, I can't really explain it like I'm in a constant state sometimes. And I know that a lot of people are kind of feeling this similar way stuck, especially over the last year or two. Uh, And I wonder if there's a way to rewire yourself or to cause yourself to have a re-traumatic episode to throw yourself back in the other direction. Is that possible?
1: So for for myself, you know, my business, educational learning, I could try and keep that up. I joined Singularity, as I mentioned, to try and keep abreast of new technologies and innovations. On the personal front, I tried a few things. And the one that really stuck for me was called the Mankind Project. You can find them online. And I do. I'm a a member of a Mankind Project team and a, a group. And we meet twice a month. And I, I find it very valuable. But they that that is an organization, and I'm sure there's many others that focuses on helping, in that case, men, um uh, uh work through their personal work associated with who they are, who they want to be, and the gap between them, and how that changes over time. Because the person you needed to be when you were young as a child, via uh you know, a, a midlife person via an elder, if you will, may actually need to be a different person. And once again, uh, uh, it's very, very hard to change yourself. And uh, th- that goes all, you know, there's the, the, the Indian uh, point of, um, uh, 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 you know, how do you change yourself when the only, th- when you, how do you change your brain when the only thing you have to work with is your brain?
0: It's very, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and coming on Untold Stories today. Uh, you've given us such valuable insight personally, professionally, uh, information, giving us the tailwinds going into the next few years. And um, I'm looking forward to having you back on in a few months from now, hopefully.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. And and uh, I, I'm pleased that we didn't just talk about blockchain co-investors, the world's biggest yeah. blockchain venture fund, or that we talked about our SPAC. I mean, I think Uh, this was a more fun session. So I appreciate we didn't just go tactical, uh, appreciate that, that we stayed, stayed at the level we did.
0: I'll talk to you soon.